As was rehearsed in the sermonette, we were encouraged this morning to think, to ponder, to consider, to study out, and I think that was very appropriate, and even in the closing prayer this morning, we asked God to help us change things that might need be needed to be changed. So I changed dinner time. I think probably the one giving the prayer had something a little deeper in mind than that. And indeed, I have been pondering over the last few days some things that we covered in the book of Deuteronomy, and it makes me wonder if it's not time to change something. We're going to start animal sacrifices next week. But someone did ask a question last night that, uh, in fact, two or three people asked the same question over the last 36 hours, but that particular time it crystallized something in my mind that I thought about some last night and again today. And I want to present it to you this afternoon. Uh, I would hate to go away from this feast without something to really grab hold on that we might utilize to the becoming more as God would have us be. And let me start it this way. No one knows creation date. I know as we studied over the years and when I was in college, uh, the earliest that some scholars dated it, according to various commentaries and so on, was around 4,025 B.C., before Christ. Now, that's strange in itself, is it not? 4,025 before Christ. Others, I think Unger's maybe said 4,008. The earliest I saw was around 4,004, except for the Jews who say it was, was it 38 or 3,900 something, I forget the exact year. But the point is, no one really knows. And I think God has obscured that on purpose, because if we do consider a six, and ultimately a 7,000 year plan of God, if we knew exactly when creation was, we would be able to figure out the Jubilees, 50 years at a whack, and know exactly when 6,000 years was, and when the millennium should start. Because in the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, it talks about the Sabbath and the rest of Christ that we are to enter into. And that rest is the millennial rest. that We we enter into a type of that rest every week on the weekly Sabbath. That's what Paul is pointing out there. But that it is symbolic of the ultimate rest of the earth the Sabbath of the earth for a thousand years. So indeed, I do believe the symbolism that Herbert Armstrong saw of a 6,000-year plan, uh, then emphasized by the seventh day, or 7,000 years, a day is as a thousand years with God. I believe that that is correct. However, there is a problem. 
You know, we have when Christ was born, whenever that was. Now, you would think that the year zero, if you count the years before, being roughly 4,000 years before he was born, and afterward 2,000 years through the sixth day, then he should be returning to begin the seventh thousand years. But there's confusion even on when he was born. How could he be born four years before he was born? For B.C. So you see, they've adjusted it. Some think 3 B.C., some think 4 B.C., that he was here four years before he was here. It's just a little bit confusing. Now, if you take the numbers of the scholars who have tried to put genealogies and all kinds of historical issues together and come up with the original creation date, if you take the most recent of those, let's say 4004, and you add to that the time up to Christ and the time since Christ, we've already been more than 6,000 years since the alleged day of creation. We're up around 6,014 or so now, using those figures. If you use the Jewish figures, we're probably not quite there yet. The point being, no one really knows. Now, some time back, I think it's been two or three years ago, I put together some uh, research done by various ones and a little of my own uh, in terms of Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 40 and Luke 4 and a few other things that could indicate from 537 B.C. with Nebuchadnezzar uh, defeated uh, Jerusalem, could put it at 2027, 2026 for the... uh, last year, and then the 50th would be the Jubilee beginning the millennium, 2027. I don't know whether that's correct or not. Therefore, we don't know when the seven-year cycle is either, because if you don't know the date of the previous or the next Jubilee, then you don't know how the seven-year cycles, 49 years, fit into that either. Now, we have considered over time, getting back to the seven-year cycle and the land rest and, and that type of thing. Uh, but in my mind, we kind of needed to determine the Jubilee to know where and when to start. Now, the more I think about it, the more I think that God may keep that Jubilee time unknown. It is too late for the Mayan December of 2012 to have any significance in God's plan. Uh, There were some people last spring that started counting, they counted back from, what is it, December 21st, I think is their day, sometime in December of 2012 anyway. And they counted back from that 1,330 days, 35 days from Daniel 12. And a date in April then would have had to have been the beginning of the 1335 for it to wind up when the Mayans say the calendar ends and history ends. And when planet X is going to hit and everything will be destroyed. Well, now we're, what, seven months or so along from there. And the first part of the 1335, the 75 days before the 1260, 
have well since expired. Uh, we're several months past that. We would already be into the 1260 days, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, if that were the case. Well, I think it's pretty obvious that we're not in the tribulation yet. The two witnesses are not preaching around the world. We have not started the countdown toward that final battle in Jerusalem yet. We haven't fled to a place of safety yet, because that is what happens the day the abomination is set up, right? Matthew 24, that's the day when the abomination is set up, we flee, and it begins the 1260 days of the Great Tribulation and the church being in a place of safety where Satan chases her. So, that has not occurred. Therefore, the Mayan date can have no significance in terms of God's plan. That is put to rest. Now, I'm not saying that it may not have some significance in the powers that be of the world, with Satan, with the New World Order. They may have plans, and Satan may, to use that for some reason. We shall see. But as far as God's plan is concerned, the start of the 1335 and the 1260 is obviously yet ahead of us. Okay? So where are we and what do we do? I want to go back to Deuteronomy 12 and start picking up a few things through this context that we looked at, read over, and perhaps did not ponder enough and need to ponder some more. He's giving them instruction as to what they are to do when they cross over and go into the land that God was going to give them. Verse 5 of Deuteronomy 12, But unto the place which the Eternal your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even to his habitation shall you seek, and there you shall come. So he said, when you go into the land, God is going to choose a place out of one of the tribes. And he did not reveal at that time where it was going to be. He said, it will be in one of the tribes in the land that you're going into. Uh, we can put together quite a few scriptures, and I gave you some. I'm not going to go there for sake of time again this afternoon. We've been there before which show that the place of his habitation is Jerusalem and Zion. We just sang that in that third song this, this afternoon that nobody knew. Uh, that's from a song, or from a psalm, where David said, I will not rest, I will give no sleep to my eyes until I find a place for a habitation for the eternal. And then he goes on to say toward the end of that chapter, that God wants to dwell in Zion, and I think he mentions Jerusalem as well. And there are quite a few places where he mentions Jerusalem will be his habitation forever. That is the place he wishes to inhabit. So, indeed, as Moses predicted here, God did choose a place, and that was it. It was the original place that he had sent Abraham in the area of the Jebusites who were there at that time. It says, you'll seek it, and there you shall come. Now, there is a critical verse. 
Because if there is any question in our minds, and I do believe there is a big question in our minds and in our research, as to whether Jerusalem is in her original place, or whether it will have to be built there in her own place, quoting from Zechariah 12.6, we need to know where the real place is once and for all and for sure. Because that's where we're to gather and where we are to go and where we are to be. So it is not fair at this point to drop that investigation, but to go full speed ahead to find out for sure what is what, so that we know. I do want to be in the right place when the time comes. I want to be sure of that. So is it worth time and energy to determine that? And I think a few more pieces of the puzzle may have come into place through some research that's being done by some of you that make it a little clearer and how it could have happened and still the Middle East be a cradle of civilization. That has come into focus. Okay, that needs to be answered. Anyway, verse 6, And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and heave offerings of your hand and your vows and your freewill offerings and the firstlings of your herds and of your flocks. So all those separate and specific things have to be brought to that place. Now, if you're going to bring yourself there and you're going to bring all of those things there, you might better have an idea where you're going. Well, Dad, we're going on a vacation this year. You said we can. Where are we going? Well, I don't know. We're just going. There's some real planning for you. I guess we'll know when we get there. Isn't it kind of nice to know where you're headed ahead of time, and then when you get in the car, you don't go in circles till you finally figure out somewhere to go? There you shall eat before the eternal your God. That's where he's going to be. So that's where I want to be, wherever it is. And you shall rejoice in all that you put your hand to, you and your households, wherein the eternal your God has blessed you. Now, verse 8 is very interesting in this context. You shall not do after all the things that we do here this day. There was something going on before they went across the Jordan that Moses says will no longer be tolerated. It's something we will no longer do. We will have to make some changes in our administration our habits, our worship, if you will. Now, that thing that he states that has to be changed is every man doing whatsoever is right in his own eyes. Now, that has come out several times by various speakers, including me recently, quoting 1 Corinthians 1.10 and other places, which say, no schism, no division, that we all think the same and say the same. So there be no division and no schism when he comes. That we're all on the same page. One for all and all for one. Not a bunch of individuals leaning to his own understanding. Now is not that 
current in the church of God today. At one time, we were fairly well joined together under the leadership of Herbert Armstrong. And as Micah 4 says, is not your counselor dead, is your king perished? Or I think it's the other way around, but that's what it says. And without him to be a steadying influence, it splintered in many directions, and we entered a time like the judges, after they had gone into the land, and a time like after they went into the land with Joshua, where over a period of time, it broke down. Joshua finally died. It broke down. The time of the judges came, and every man leaned to his own understanding. That was a time of upheaval. It was a time of instability, a time that was not peaceful in the history of Israel. And we today have gone through that very same process. Today in the church, everybody feels quite justified in thinking whatever he wants to think and doing whatever he thinks is right. Doing that which is right, not wrong, but doing that which is right in his own eyes. Not God's Word, necessarily. Not according to a leader in the church, but in his own eyes. Now that leads to more splits, more schisms, more division. It leads to further trouble and lack of peace in the church. Now God says in the book of Haggai that when he brings his remnant together to build the end time temple, that he will bring peace in this place. Haggai 2 verse 9, I think it is. Now that means that from where we stand today in the church, he is going to draw a people together who will recognize the leadership that God puts there, and they will all come to see things the same way. That is the only way you can have peace, is if everyone agrees. Paul recognized that in Corinth. He says, if this Corinth congregation is going to be at peace with one another, then we must fulfill the goal of speaking the same and thinking the same. Otherwise, we will continue to have rifts and confusion and frustration and problems. So God has taken it upon himself to say, that the confusion you now find yourselves in will end. And he has even described the process whereby that will take place. He will point to leaders. The people will come together to them. We will unitedly seek to fulfill God's purposes at the end. And there will be a God-appointed representation on the earth, that he recognizes, and that then all that remnant will recognize. Ninety percent of the church will not recognize it. Nor will they be invited there. Nor will they show up. Unless they are meek and humble and teachable and ready to listen to the leadership that God has appointed. 
Now, 90% will not show up because, and there might be many things you could put after that because, but in great part because they have become used to thinking the way they wish to think, to doing that which is right and how they view the Scriptures. So they are not going to be willing to submit to whomever God sends. And therefore, they will not be a part of what God does at the end. God is looking for a poor and humble, poor in spirit, humble, meek people. He says in Zephaniah 2, that's the kind of people he will save out. He's not looking for a bunch of authorities full of pride and boasting of their own ideas. They will not be invited. They will not be stirred to come. Unfortunately, that's the way it was in Israel, and Israel had to be destroyed. God does not like a time when everybody does right in his own eyes. Now, he took the leadership, the kingship away, and turned it over to the judges because of disobedience, and it just got worse until it led to captivity. And the same thing is true this very day as we sit here. The church is a mess. And it's going to be a mess until God provides leadership and brings the people to do his work. He said, it won't be that way anymore. And when he appointed Joshua, they all looked to him. But when he died, it was all over. Then he says in verse 9, For you were not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the eternal your God gives you. They were still on the other side of the Jordan, but the, the crossing was imminent, would not be long. And he's giving this last admonition to them. There will be changes. But when you go over, when ye, yeah, you, not him, go over Jordan and dwell in the land which eternal your God gives you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety. He promises peace and safety under Zerubbabel and Joshua in the end. Just as he did under Joshua there. Then there shall be a place which the Eternal your God shall choose to cause His name to dwell there, there shall you bring all that I command you. And he repeats what he had just said about the tithes and offerings and so on. Now, I find it quite interesting that even as Moses did not know for sure, apparently, and certainly the people did not, which tribe God would choose and which city in that tribe it would be, we find ourselves also in a quandary today on whether the accepted Jerusalem is correct or whether there is indeed a previous alternate that was the original. So is it in that land over there, which some call Judah, which contains very few Jews and no other Israelites to speak of, or is it in the land of Ephraim where we dwell today, where God started his end-time work and where it will continue, as I see it, until this is finished? We don't know for absolute sure, do we? 
So we're in the same position they were in. We need to know. They were to find out, and we shall find out. So that we know and know that we know what we're doing, and that where we do it is the correct place. The parallels between Moses' last farewell and today are incredible. He talks again in verse 14, But in the place which the eternal shall choose, there you shall offer your burnt offerings. He brings this out many, many times. Okay? When you go into the land becomes important. Now, I want us to consider something, which I brought up recently, but I want to review it. And that is that Worldwide Church of God was uh, incorporated in 1933. And just as the early New Testament church existed about 70 years from roughly 30 A.D. to roughly 100 A.D. and disappeared, in like fashion, the end-time church of God began to be truly organized in 1933. Now, there was some preliminary preparation. Herbert Armstrong had to be called in 26 and 27, had to study, had to have his time with uh, the Church of God's seventh day until it came time to separate and begin something very small that would grow. The same thing was true of the early New Testament church. John the Baptist had to be called out. He had to preach and teach. Christ had to come of age. He began, he was baptized, began to preach and teach. And three and a half years later, plus 50 days, the early New Testament church became organized and able to function. Up until that time, it had not functioned whatsoever. In fact, they were told, sit and wait, and don't do anything until Pentecost. Then you will be empowered to do a work. So the early New Testament church had its formation period, just as Herbert Armstrong did, but the time that it was truly organized and began to move forward was in 1933. So then you count forward 70 years based on Daniel, based on Jeremiah 25, based on Second Chronicles and other places. You move forward 70 years with that church ensconced in the middle of Babylon, having trouble extricating itself from the system, and being Laodicean and sort of in the church and in the world at the same time, in a very difficult situation trying to work among people who worked on Saturday and you couldn't, going to the feast when they wanted you there to work. And then when their holidays and things came up, you were ready to work. And everything was out of joint. Nothing worked together. Nothing flowed. They were going this way and we were trying to swim upstream and having... A great deal of difficulty in so doing, were we not? So, 70 years thereafter, God gave a very small group of people, and God always does things small to start. Herbert Armstrong said that I don't know how many times. 
And I think that that history is being repeated again. After the feast of 2009, he showed us a place that was almost given to us. And we began to develop that. And by January, late January of 2003, just almost exactly 70 years after Herbert Armstrong officially began Worldwide Church of a Radio Church of God at the time, we divided the land up and were able to start moving on and developing at being there in a situation that began to move us out of the clutches of Babylon. A place to go. A place to begin to build a people, a nation, a community, however you want to put it. Very small. Now, we have developed that land into a community, even declared ourselves a township. God said it would be built as towns without walls. Several villages. Well, we have one essentially built, I think, developed, everything in. And then over the last three years, we've had another conundrum. We've scratched our heads and wondered, once some information came to us, if a place not too far from here was the original Jerusalem. Now, before we came here, we began to realize that Zion here was a place that was important in the purpose and plan of God here in the end time. I'll not review all that. We're familiar with it, and it would take quite a while to do it anyway. But that was in place. We had our first feast right at the base of what is perhaps God's original great white throne, called the West Temple by some today, but that may be indeed the great white throne. And we worshipped right at the base of it. Is that a coincidence? I highly doubt it. I believe that in Ephraim, the United States, God has Zion. We heard this morning about counting her towers, Zion, the beauty of all the land, and how this Zion is that way. Now, we are at a point where we have not quite proved beyond any shadow of doubt, and that will have to be done one way or another in the next months and years, whatever it takes, whether this place that we are considering is it or not. If not, we better start packing and figure out something else to go where God has placed His name. If this is it, we need to get more involved. So we need to prove it one way or another. And I'd rather work on it from this end, proving this is, since I'm here and can examine what is here, as opposed to going over there and what I already see has many, many holes in it. So we've already been somewhat released. I think that we are on the verge of expanding our numbers. 
We're poised on the edge. Perhaps prepared would be a good word. Are we prepared now to be increased soon? We just wrapped up another cycle of the holy days. You see, between Passover and Feast of Tabernacles, there's roughly six months. And you are in the protecting arms of the holy day cycle, enacting, acting out the plan of God. And after Feast of Tabernacles in the last great day, today, you have about six months in which you are outside that cycle of purpose of God. You don't re-enter that cycle until Passover. And then you're within it again. So six months, we are rehearsing the plan of God, and for six months, it isn't there. I'd never thought of it really that way before until today, but that's where we are. Now, what do we do with the next six months? It was brought up in the sermonette. Don't relax and waste it. What is to be done with it? Are we prepared for the next move forward? See, once you establish a village and God says villages must come, then you must... Find out where they need to be, same place we were when we were looking for this place. How can they be developed? What is next? When will the people come? How many will there be? What do you do with them when they arrive? It appears to me, based on what I see in the Scriptures, that that should be the next logical move. We need to be prepared for when God moves. Now, I don't know for sure when He's going to move. But if this is essentially prepared, and we are essentially convinced on Jerusalem, and need to finish proving it, then we're going to need to know in conjunction with Jerusalem, once that can be established where he would want the people in conjunction with it, and how we are to go about this thing. If you're going to go on a vacation, you need to figure out where you're going. You need some planning. So we've already been released from Babylon, or at least semi-released. Now perhaps we're poised at the base of the Canaan Mountains, ready to go into the land of Canaan, specifically, to develop more villages. Perhaps to develop Jerusalem and whatever God has in mind there. I'm not going to get into temple and walls of Jerusalem and all that today. We've already looked at those possibilities, and I'm sure we will look at them again. How do we begin preparing? What do we do? I think there is some information right here in Deuteronomy. When you're poised to go into the land, and I think that's right where we are today. It's almost time to begin developing for what is to come. We've already established a beachhead. We already have a place prepared, but it's small, and the scripture itself says that there must be more towns or villages. Now, 
scratch your head. Where? How? How can this come about? Is it something to think about, pray about, study about, meditate on, search the Scriptures to find more information on? Look at what might be available around us and how God and His mighty arm might cause these things to begin to happen? I don't have all the answers today. You don't either. Now, if you don't have the answers, but you have questions, aren't you supposed to find the answers to the questions? If you have questions and don't even seek the answers, what good are you? We have to seek God's face. Blessed is the nation God is for, we sing, and the people that he has chosen. I want us to be a nation. I want us to be a people that God is for and not against. I want us to be one that he has chosen. Because blessed is that people. Now, he's going to choose a lot from around the world. But I want us to be among them. And I do believe that he called us here to prepare the way. To establish a beachhead for them. As far as I can see, that's pretty well established. So what's next? And I think that needs to be one of the uppermost things in our prayers in the coming weeks and months. Is what's next, O oh Lord? Where do we go next? What do we do? How do we do it? How will you provide? Give us direction, guidance. Help us place our feet in the right way. Or as I think it was Nehemiah said, show us the right way for ourselves and our little ones and our flocks and herds. What is the way to go? Guide and lead our steps. Show us what you want us to do. Don't let us be misled or misguided or taken off in a wrong direction. But show us your purposes, your reasons, in clarity, with direction, so that we can fulfill whatever purposes you might could use us for. We need to be willing, prepared, ready to serve, to do whatever God wants done, no matter how hard it might seem, and I'll guarantee you, when he warns you not to fear, to be of good courage, to work, and to be strong. Those four things over and over. You're going to need all four of those things. If you are to fear not, that means there will be things to fear. If you need good courage, you're going to be facing things that require courage. If you're to be strong, you'll be facing things that would make your knees knock and make you be weak. And if you're to work, there must be something to do. A plan, a purpose, a job to do. Those four admonitions require all that. Okay?
Well, we were released, or at least partially released from Babylon. I think a bigger release is coming for a bigger number of people. And I think that it is going to require at some point God's intervention to be a wall of fire around because what he wants done is going to cause the whole world to come down on his people. They are not going to like the things that God is going to commission his faithful remnant to do. So expect persecution and trouble. That is just something that comes with the territory. And I think we're talking about territory. A place to do some things that he wants done. Now, is it time to get better organized? If you're going to accomplish something, it pays to organize. Now, some of us are almost freaks with organization and we plan every little move. And that can be good. And some of us tend to be a little more lazy fair about it. And, okay, let's just do it. And I tend to be more in that category. Organizing every move is not one of my strong suits. Get her done is more my approach. And we'll organize it as we go. Now, that has a good side and a bad side. But I do recognize a need for a certain amount of organization at least. You can waste a lot of time running around in circles. So I think if we have something that God has planned ahead that we might be a part of, we need to get a little better organized. Now, where did I want to go here? Uh, Chapter 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall make a release. I believe we read this just yesterday. So, you go through a seven-year cycle, and there is a year of release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor releases debt. Uh, A foreigner, you can exact it again, but of a brother, you have to forgive it. Uh, Save when there's no poor among you, as verse 4 says. Uh, then I spent some time in verse 6 where he says we will, should be lenders and not borrowers and how we need to be getting ourselves financially in shape over a period of time to get that done and help those who need help. Now it says in verse 12, and if, it, and if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, be sold to you and serve six years, then he is to be released after seven. Uh, Let's go to a companion scripture, Leviticus 25. And we see more detail here that Moses did not give in the summary. The Eternal spoke to Moses in Mount Sinai saying, and Moses in Deuteronomy was referring back to this, only he did it only in summary. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land. Now we've been reading that a lot. It's said a lot of times. And we are about to come into the land. I do not believe Jerusalem is right here where we are. Therefore, we must go somewhere else. Either over the seas 
or somewhere not too far from here, or wherever that may be. And I believe that things are getting close enough in the condition of the world, and in the tearing apart of the churches, and in the preparation that we have done, that we are not far from time to go into the land where Jerusalem is, wherever that may be. I'll always put that caveat in there until it is absolutely proven. Okay? When you go into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath to the eternal. So the year of release, every seventh year, is equated to also the land Sabbath. Six years shall you sow your seed, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest to the land, a Sabbath for the eternal. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. That which grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, neither gather the grapes of your vine undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the land. So even as God established a weekly Sabbath to remind us of creation and His plan, He then instituted a seven-year plan, and seven times seven equaled 49 of those cycles, followed by a jubilee year, where not only did you release personal debt, but all land went back to the original owners, that is, as it was divided out and parceled at the time they went into the land under Joshua. So you could not really sell the land. You could only lease it for up to 49 years. And then it had to be returned to the original owners. That way God kept things in balance, and families got a chance to start over every 50 years if some fool got rid of the family inheritance. God had a way of evening things out, unlike the world, which takes from the poor to give to the rich. Verse 6, And the Sabbath of the land shall be food for you, for you and for your servant and for your maid and for your hired servant and for your stranger that sojourns with you. And for your cattle and for the beasts that are in the land shall all the increase thereof be food. And you shall number seven Sabbaths of years unto, unto you, seven times seven years, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Then shall you cause the trump of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, showing that that particular cycle ended at the time of the fall holy days. The Jubilee picture was done at atonement for a purpose, because it shows the marriage of the bride to Christ and the establishment of his family through the wedding of the son and the bride. So that through that marriage, freedom might come to all the children of God. So God's financial year and his jubilee and year of release and Sabbath ended at the time of the fall festivals. Now, God made it clear that our calendar that we operate from day by day and that we calculate the holy days from begins in Abib in the first month in the spring. But the financial or fiscal year ends at the fall after the harvests. 
because that's when, in an agricultural system, your main income comes. And then you can gather up the fruits of that harvest to keep the feasts. Now, there are minor harvests in the spring and in the, fall, in the summer, but the main harvest is in the fall. And indeed, in God's plan, the main harvest of souls is pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles in the last great day. So it all fits in sync. Anyway, verse 10, And you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee to you. And you shall return every man to his possession, and you shall return every man to his family. A jubilee shall, be, shall that fiftieth year be to you. You shall not sow nor reap that which grows of itself. It is the jubilee. I'm skipping through this a bit. In the year of this jubilee, verse 13, return every man his possession. And buying and selling and whatever you had acquired went back. Uh, verse 17, you shall not therefore oppress one another. But you shall fear your God, for I am the eternal, your God. And he would keep everything in society in balance through this system, okay? Verse 18, Wherefore you shall do my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them. And you shall dwell in the land in safety. There's a promise of security if we do these things. And the land shall yield her fruit, and you shall eat your fill, and dwell therein in safety. And then an immediate question will come up. Well, if we don't plant anything that seventh year, what are we going to eat? So God covers it. Next verse. And if you shall say, what shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow, nor gather in our increase. That's the rule. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. Now, do any of you remember in your past history in the church of God any year in which the land and all our finances produced three times what they normally do? I do not, and I date back to 1953. Nowhere has that happened. What's wrong? And you shall sow the eighth year, and eat yet of old fruit until the ninth year. So, you don't plant the seventh year, which means you don't have anything to eat the eighth year. You plant the eighth year, and it's the beginning of the ninth year before you have a crop. The feast of the beginning of the ninth year. So you need three years worth of food. So until her fruits come in, you shall eat of the old store. The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourning. In other words, it can be leased on how many ever years there are until the Jubilee, and then it has to be returned. If you talk somebody out of their land on the first year of the next cycle, you could keep it for 49. If you don't talk them out of it until the 47th year, you better not sign anything longer than two-year lease because it's going right back to them. Now, in the church, we have recognized all the time under Herbert Armstrong that the seventh year of the land Sabbath should be recognized. But we were a bunch of people scattered all over the world 
We were not an agricultural society. We were working in factories and jobs and real estate offices and wherever. And it was never coordinated to actually do this because we were not a people. We were not a nation. We thought about it off and on and wondered what to do about it and didn't know. So, how do you keep your third tithe years? Because this land Sabbath cycle was seven years long. And third tithe was to be kept every third and sixth year of the seven-year cycle. The seventh year obviously out because you don't even plant. So you wouldn't count that year. But every third year, the Bible shows, and I'm not going back to all that now. I've been through it before for sake of time. The third and the sixth years. But we were staggered all over the place. And they says, well, you count it from your baptism. If that was in December or July, count it from your baptism. Or alternatively, sometimes they said count it to the nearest feast, whether it's Passover or Tabernacles, to your baptism. So every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. Right? There was no plan. There was no purpose. There was no organization. And when your third tithe came in, or when your checks came in, and it was your year to pay your third tithe, you just sent it to Pasadena, and they spent it however they felt they wanted to. Now, if we're to be a people, and to be a nation, we all need to be on the same page. No split, no schism, no division, we all think the same. All doing the same. Now, if we are to follow this command more carefully, we have to get organized to do it. It would be utterly confusing if we tried to release debt every seventh year, and every one of us reckoned the seventh year at a different time. And it would become difficult to say, well, I wonder when his year of release is. And if I owe him, when do I need to release him? And if I owe somebody else, he'll have a different year of release, and I have to recalculate. So when we buy and sell on time, or when we do leases, or anything of that loan money, then it would be utter confusion. If we're all in the same cycle, doing the same thing, we will all know when the year of release is to be. We can all plan ahead for it to be sure, if we're honest, that we try to settle all our debt rather than have it released. And also, whoever is the lender can plan and understand that I think this one's going to pay off and this one will pay off, but I don't see any way in the world that one's going to get it paid. I'm going to have to release that. So he has to plan his finances in the consequence of who might and might not be able to fulfill their debt responsibility. So for everybody to plan together to do something the way God would have it done, we have to all be on the same page, don't we? That avoids confusion and strife. 
So the third year, the third tithe cycle of the third and sixth year out of seven needs to be the same. Now, how many of you, all, I think probably all of us recognize and we try to do our first fruits and our firstling things and how do you do that? And we recognize the land Sabbath, the land rest. We recognize it ought to be done, but who knows when to do it? We've been here seven years. Has anybody done a land rest yet? Maybe one. Was it this year? Well, got one thinking. Where do we go from here? How do we fix this? You see, if you're not organized and you don't have something planned and managed properly, it's just sort of hit or miss. And if you don't know and you don't have set out ahead of time what is what, then you just never get there. It's like the feasts. We determine when the new moons are and we plan the year out so that we know where we're going and how to get there. If we just at the, at the, in the beginning figure, well, let's see, when's Passover? Oh, let me see. I, oh, oh. Well, let's keep it now. Well, what about the feast? Oh, that's later. Don't worry about it. We'll get around to it. First thing you know, we wouldn't be keeping it. Like a lot are doing. So it needs to be organized according to a plan and a purpose so that it can be accomplished. And the seventh year land Sabbath, as our own habit and performance would attest, we have not kept in this fashion. Now, I don't think we need to wait until an exact and true and beyond question year of Jubilee can be determined before we begin to institute this part. We can go on the best knowledge we have. And if we then learn, maybe God shows at some point exactly when the kingdom is going to come and the millennium be established, we know the Jubilee, then we can adjust it somewhat again. But I think we need to adjust ahead of time what it is in our power to adjust to get as much in line with things as we possibly can. As a side note before we go here, the question that was asked me is, well, my third tithe, what do I do? As soon as I'm paid, do I give it to the widow and the orphan? Because I'd read that passage which says, lay it up within your gates. It's different than the second tithe because the second tithe is to be taken, either animals or bind up in your hand as money, to Jerusalem to keep the feast. You spend it on whatever you wish and desire in terms of food and drink, lodging, whatever, to keep the feast and make sure that a category of people that he names are taken care of with it as well. Now, when it talks about this tithe of the third year, it says you are to lay it up within your gates. Store it. Keep it. Manage it. 
And over a period of time, as needs with the stranger, the widow, the orphan, and the Levite occur, you're to take of that and give it to them for to take care of that particular need, whatever it might be. You are seeing then the beginning of a management process. Most Americans do not manage their money. They spend it and live from paycheck to paycheck and put it wherever it has to go to stay afloat. Now, if he says, lay that third tithe up in your gates, don't take it to Jerusalem, spend it. Lay it up within your gates. That's not worldwide, what Worldwide did. They said, send it to us, we'll take care of it for you. No. This is a personal responsibility. And if you are honest and God-fearing, you will never dip into that for your needs. It is something you lay up from your harvest or your income of the third and six years of seven, and you put it back in whatever lockbox you need to keep your grubby fingers out of it, because it is holy use money. It is for a specific purpose. It is not to be spent for anything else other than those four categories God gives. And you then have the responsibility of watching your friends, your brothers, your neighbors, your relatives, the widow, the orphan, the Levite, and the stranger, to see when they have need and then take care of that need. God has made a system that takes care of those who might, for whatever reason, fall upon hard times and need help and subsistence. That is God's welfare program, to put it that way. It's what He established. Now that forces you to manage, doesn't it? Now He tells you with the second tithe that you are to lay it up and take it then to keep His feasts. Ten percent of your profit per year goes to keep all of his holy days, and be sure that those same four categories are taken care of as well. You are not allowed to touch that money for any other purpose. That's what it is set aside for. Now, some people say, well, I had to borrow out of my second tithe. No, you didn't. You stole from holy money that God had told you to set aside. You must Learn to manage in such a way that that money does not enter your mind as something you could use in an emergency. It is not your emergency fund. It is holy money that God has told you to put aside. You see, now you've got 10% plus every third and sixth year, another about a third of a percent or three percent of your money managed for you. And God is teaching you something there. He's teaching you to be responsible. He's teaching you to manage so that you don't touch the holy thing. Now, with the other tithe, he tells you to give it all to the Levite. 
Now, it doesn't call first and second and third tithe in the Bible. It's called the Levitical tithe, or one that you give to the Levite. First tithe. Then you have one that he says, keep, store up, and take and spend at the feast. Now, if you gave the tithe all to the Levite, and there was only one tithe, how are you going to take what you gave to the Levite to the feast? I used to go beat it out of him. So by use, there has to be another tithe. And then the other one, the year of tithing, it says the third year, it says to lay up within your gates. Don't give it to the Levite. Don't spend it at the feast. Lay it up within your gates for those four categories of need. So by usage, it shows that there are three that are specifically designated for those uses. Now, that has put you in a management program whereby you are responsible and accountable to God for doing those things. Then he tells us, in addition to that, he says tithes and free will offerings in Malachi and says it right here in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. And yesterday, when I said that you need to think about it and plan it each year, I was not. And some may have gone to that conclusion and I thought of it as soon as I sat down. I was not trying to get you to think it through and give more. That was not my purpose whatsoever, if you took it that way. My purpose was to get you to think and plan and manage so that you could give according to the blessings God has given you. Some years it might be less than that which you have maybe kind of decided as a right-size offering, and which you do by road year by year. Some years you might consider things and say, I can only give this much this year, less than I did last year. Perfectly acceptable. Now, if you've had a good year financially, and you think it through, go through your planning and thinking and pondering process, use your pencil, whatever, and you say, I can give more this year than I did last year, then give more. I was not trying to browbeat you into giving more and more and more each year. But you, out of worldwide, cynical as you are, may have thought that. I did not cover that base yesterday. Sometimes it will be more, sometimes it will be less. He does say that when the males appear, though, they shall not appear empty. Now, it's not their tithe they bring. They gave that 10% to the priests, the ministry. And they saved their second tithe to bestow upon that which they desire at the feast. They kept within their gates in the third and sixth year the third tithe to take care of those four categories. So the free will offering then that they bring is what God is commanding not to come empty with. Now, not come empty means bring something. It doesn't bring, you can say, well, I had a bad year, I'm bringing nothing. You must bring something, but it can be more or less depending on your financial situation. There is more that enters into the equation than that. None of us is empty of blessing. 
we're still above ground. We might have a wife or a husband who's above ground. And you've got to decide if that's a blessing or not. With most of us, it's a blessing. It is with me. We have our children, maybe. We have a shelter. We have food. We have clothes. We have knowledge of God's truth and His purpose. We have knowledge of where He is working on the earth with a bunch of people that He has called and now choosing. We have incredible blessings. So we can't come empty, can we? It is the financial part, then, that we have to consider how much financial blessing we have in determining the amount of not coming empty. We can't wait for knowledge, true knowledge of the Jubilee. It may remain obscure. We can look at our situation and see opportunity to reinstate various things of God's statutes and judgments, which are a national thing to do. In the millennium, these statutes and judgments are going to be re-established. The feasts will be kept. Some say the feasts don't need to be kept today, but they'll be kept in the millennium. Then why did the early New Testament church keep the fast? Why did Paul need to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost? Why were they keeping God's holy days in the New Testament if they were done away? They were not. Now, if they were not done away, then the support system for them is not done away. If we did away with second tithe, for instance, we would have no money to go up to keep the feast. We'd be scraping for our last paycheck like some still tend to do, instead of saving it the way God said to. If you don't keep the feast, you don't need the support system. If you do keep the feast, you need to keep the support system. Now, we were to read... Deuteronomy, every seventh year, in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles. Because that is the time of year that the release occurs, and every seven years is when it recurs. The seven-year Sabbath and the year of release are tied together with the feast system, just like the second tithe and even the third tithe is. They're part of the support system for the feast system. Therefore, I think we need to look at our situation and see how we could go about this with a minimum of pain and based upon our experience to get in line with the system God set up for His feasts and His land Sabbath. Now, he's the one that has to perform first on the land Sabbath, isn't he? He's the one that says, I will give you a triple crop in the sixth year. You don't need to not plant and then not eat for a year and then be blessed after you obey. What then do you need to do? You need to make a commitment to God that I will keep the seventh year land Sabbath, 
and I will keep your holy day system, and I will do my very best, and when it comes up, I will rest my land on the seventh year. Now, you could do that as an individual, but if we are a body to be fitly joined together and do things together, one for all and all for one as a family and as a nation, and Israel will be a nation in the millennium, that's the way they will do it. Up to now, the church has not been in that situation. But from the time in 2003, when we divided the land up and moved out onto the land together to form a community, we became a nation. A small one, but an entity. And we need to do things together. Now, back to the beginning. Herbert Armstrong established, organized in 1933. In 2003, we organized and established right here, 70 years later, just like Jeremiah said and Daniel said. And Zechariah 1 says, which specifically puts it in the time of the village's of Revelation of uh, Zechariah 2. So we have a timeline established there, don't we? Now we have been, come January of 2010, in a few months, we will have been here 77 years, and this is the first, the last feast just before that. It was after the feast in 2002 we found the land. By January, we divided it up and started moving on to our lots. In the end-time history of the Church of God, January has been the premium month for good and bad events to occur. And God did that again with us. And He did it in the context of what Herbert Armstrong had done. Now here we are, seven years later, having built a village having studied Jerusalem, and we find ourselves, it was brought to my attention just before the feast a couple of months, I I was just reading through something in Deuteronomy and it caught my eye. You should do this in the year of release. And then I said, this is our seventh year here. And it fit the 70 and 7, 77. And now, it's been laid upon me, my mind and thought and thinking and prayer, and by questions asked by some of you, that this would be the optimal time to reintroduce the seven-year cycle. We've been here seven years this feast. And if we begin year one of the next cycle tomorrow, after the feast. No one will need to pay third tithe until after the feast in 2011. That will give some of you a break who are about to start your third tithe year. It will give a break to some of those who would have started it next year. And the rest of us could be jealous if we wished. Why do they get a break and I don't? Now, if you're going to adjust it, 
it has to give a benefit in some cases. But if we do it now, it gives a benefit maybe financially to some, but it does not take away from anyone. Because we all start fresh right now, and no one need pay third tithe for two more years, beginning the third year. So everybody gets a break. And then if we do dealings with each other between now and the next six years, to, well, to the seventh year, through the seventh year, and you release at feast time. Or is it that, I'd have to think about that. Do you do it at the end of the sixth year, begin the year of release? That, that is the year of release, is the seventh year. You don't wait till seven years is over, I guess, and then release. I have to think about that, study it through, and think, it, think about it. It just popped into my mind. Anyway, we don't have to worry about it for a while. Seven, six years at least. And I think things are going to be a whole lot different in six years than they are today. A whole lot different. But we can commit to something that puts us all on the same page and gets us in line with Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 15, and other scriptures. So I'm submitting that to you. Uh, whenever we discover the Jubilee year is, we will have to adjust the land Sabbath cycle to fit it, will we not? And it will mean that some might have to pay now and some might have to pay later and it would change it, just as it would now. You would no longer use your baptism or Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles nearest your baptism. We would start tomorrow on the first year of the seven-year cycle. Everyone would be in sync, in line, on the same page, and we will have made a commitment to God that unitedly and together we will keep the third tithe in the third and sixth year, we will release all debt in the seventh year to our brothers in the church, and by our making that commitment, it then obligates Him if we follow through, to bless us triple in the sixth year so that we might survive through the seventh and the eighth to the harvest of the ninth. Beginning of the ninth. That's what I'm going to do. Now, if somebody has a conscience problem with that, saying, well, I've, I figured it out, and this was my third, and this was my sixth, and I won't be keeping it. Yes, you will. Haven't we had to make adjustments in our lives all along? When we began to learn the truth, we couldn't go back and redo all the Sabbaths we had broken. We couldn't puke up all the pig we'd eaten. We just had to start doing it right from there forward. So if we've been out of sync and our third tithe year was just coming up, breathe deeply, thank God, and get in cycle with everybody here. Because we then can be a people and a nation set apart who are doing something unitedly for God the way He wants it done, and it will help draw us together 
And there will be no confusion about when to rest our land. We'll all do it together, as Israel did and as Israel will. We're just fixing something we were not doing properly. That's all we're doing. And if some of you get a bit of a credit for that, wonderful. Not a problem. Don't worry about it. Because we're all coming out of this organization and mismanagement and sin and beginning to do it together right. I think that's the bottom line. What say ye? Some want to. That's enough for me. I think we can go no better than the year in front of us. If, there again, if we discover when the actual Jubilee is, we will adjust the land cycle to fit it. Right now, we can go off of 70 and 7 years of history of God with the church and us. And I think that's the best we can do. Just use what God has shown us thus far and our history in the end time church. And that's the best decision we can make at the moment. And why did it come up now? I've toyed with it off and on over the years, but never knew what to do. Now, I think we see a clear path at a time when it will not hurt anybody and get us all together. So, unless something comes up to show that that's wrong, I think that's the direction we should proceed. And uh, I'm going to establish that as the practice and administration of this congregation. Because I think it fits God's work better than what we've been doing. May not be perfect yet, since we don't know for sure the Jubilee, but it's a whole lot better than what we've been doing. It's closer to God, not further from God. Okay? That's the direction we need to be moving. May not be perfect, but it's better than what we had. I'm not perfect either, but I hope to be better tomorrow than I was yesterday. <laughs> Flip a coin, I'm working on it. Thank you for a wonderful feast. Thank you for all the service and giving, preparing and organizing and getting ready activities we've had. I think we've had some wonderful fellowship time together. I think we've had a lot of understanding of God's Word reviewed before us. Maybe we've had a breakthrough on some understanding here on something we can actively do. And I pray that God will help all of you who are traveling to get home safely and that we will all do our level best to continue to pray and ask God for guidance and help and direction, that our feet will walk the right paths, that he will increase our understanding of our job and his plan and purpose maybe for us, how we fit in it and what we need to do and how to go about it. I take a lot of that on my own shoulders. That's where the weight rests. It's where the buck stops. 
And I do appreciate your prayers and your encouragement and your ideas and your thoughts and your questions. It was a question asked last night that made me finally, truly focus on what I said today. You are invaluable to me. I need your support. I need your help. I need your study. I need your example. I need each and every one of you to help do what God wants us to do. Now, I'm not going to have a pity party here, but sometimes it's lonely at the top. Whatever you do, more than likely you're going to get second-guessed somewhere by someone. You cannot please all the people all the time. And if you do, you will drive yourself quite nuts in the process. I pray that God will help me lead you where you need to be. And I pray that you will pray the same way. We are here to serve God. He has called you to serve God. And we need to bend every effort and focus and do everything we can to uncover the goals, the purposes, the desires, the needs that he has and where we might fit in that plan. That we be in the right place, doing the right thing, at the right time, in the way that he wants it done. So there's a direction for your prayers. I can have this idea. You can have that idea. We could all lean to our own understanding. But God says as we prepare to go into the land, it is not to be that way anymore. So we need to unitedly pray diligently that God will guide us and lead us to understanding that will cause us to be fitly joined together under God, and accomplish His purposes. If we pray unitedly toward that end, not our will, but yours be done, then His will will be done in us. Because He's promised us that. <clears throat>